probably sensed, if you've known me for any amount of time, a little bit of a, a switch in some certain things that I personally care about and have been thinking about. And, you know, there are different concerns in our lives that ebb and flow. You know, what you're concerned about at 80 years old, you're not concerned about at 10 years old. What you're concerned about at 40 years old, you're not concerned about at 20 years old. You know, I hear a lot of 40-year-olds 40, 40 say, as soon as you hit 40, your eyesight goes. You know, you're concerned about your eyesight, but when you're 30, you're not as concerned about it. There are concerns that ebb and flow in our lives. And one area that I've been concerned about more and more recently that I never was concerned about just on a personal level is, is in the subject that we might call durability. Durable people can handle tumultuous times, can't they? It just makes sense. Durable people with durable skills handle tumultuous times better than people who are not durable and do not have durable skills. You even think about 2020. And you realize as you look back on 2020, boy, the supply chain is actually not as strong as we thought it might be. It might not be as durable as we thought that it could be when we're starting to look for bidets on Amazon because we can't find any toilet paper, right? That was supposed to be funnier than you just thought it was. <laughs> but durable people handle hard times better. But there's, an, which by the way, I remember the first time I ever saw a bidet. I had no idea what that thing was. <laughs> uh, it was in Turkey. And I was like, wow, that's different. But anyway, when you think about durability, and you think about durable people, they're able to handle difficult times well. But you know, even beyond just being personally durable and maybe a level of self-sufficiency and ability to provide for yourself, I also think about durability a lot in regard to the church. Is Windsor Christian Fellowship a durable church? And what would be some of the characteristics of a durable church? What would you look at to say, that's a durable church and we know that it's durable because of X, Y, and Z? Kind of like the durable individual who has land and has the ability to grow their own food. They're more durable. They have skills that will work in difficult times. They're more durable. Well, what about a church? What do we look at in a church in order to see if it's durable? Because, you know, a church that splits over the color of a carpet is not a durable church. A church that splits over all of these little things that cause these fractions among churches, they're not durable churches. A church that is dependent even on their pastor is not a durable church. There are many churches that if the pastor were to die on Monday, the church would just fall apart at the seams. So how could we even look at our church and say, this is a durable church, we're not going to get weird about little things. We're not going to run as soon as things get difficult. We're not dependent on Brandon or the elders in, in the sense that if they were to disappear, that we would crumble as a church. How do you tell a durable church? You know, maybe you don't spend too much time thinking about the durability of your church or maybe even the durability of yourself. 
But you know, in the context of ministry and the durability of ministries, there have been others, even in our text today, that were concerned about the durability of their leader and the durability of that leader's ministry. John the Baptist's disciples were concerned about the durability of John's ministry. They didn't know if John's ministry was going to be able to outlast or outperform, outdo Jesus's ministry. They start to look at Jesus and the kind of people that he was drawing in and all of the baptisms that his disciples were doing. And they begin to look around and they start to wonder themselves to themselves, is John's ministry going to last? Is there durability in John the Baptist's ministry? Because it seems like Jesus's ministry is far exceeding our own rabbis, our own John the Baptist. And with the Apostle John, who is writing the Gospel of John, I think he shows us three things that we find in our passage this morning about John the Baptist. Again, those are separate men. The men, man who wrote this Gospel of John is different than John the Baptist. And so the Apostle John shows us several things about John the Baptist and, and here they are, and they're on the back of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. That John the Baptist had the right understanding, he had the right attitude because he had the right ad- understanding, and he had the right reaction because he had the right attitude from the right understanding. So let's think about the first one. Having the right understanding. Look again at John chapter 3 and verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John was also baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. So the stage is really set for us in verses 22 to 24. Jesus is with his disciples there in the Judean countryside. And this text indicates that they were spending a bunch of time in this place. So Jesus wasn't hustling and bustling at this moment. He wasn't in and out of all these different locations. He was just kind of in this general area. And he was spending time in this area with his disciples. And he was baptizing. But I love what it says there, by the way, in regard to the time that he's spending with his disciples. Did you notice that there in verse 22? And his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. Jesus spent three and a half years with these guys, and during this specific period, he's just spending time. Which, incidentally, that is exactly what discipleship is. Discipleship isn't a class. Discipleship isn't walking through books together, uh, like in a classroom format. Discipleship is time. And so many of us, we begin to wonder, we ask ourselves, why don't we have time to disciple? I've got the kids running around and so forth. They are not outside of the Great Commission. Your children are primary disciples and they're stuck with you for almost two decades. And you get all of that time to disciple 
your kids. And so that's what discipleship is. Discipleship is time, and Jesus demonstrates that for us here. But the specific action that Jesus' disciples were doing at this time was baptizing. They were baptizing people. We know from John chapter 4, which we'll see in a couple of weeks, John chapter 4 verse 2, that Jesus himself did not baptize. Jesus wasn't himself baptizing people, but his disciples were baptizing people. The text also says that not too far away, John the Baptist was baptizing people near a place called Salim. And the reason they were baptizing in that place was because they, there was much water there. So there again, just by way of a quick principle, a quick observation, you see that he's baptizing in that location specifically because there was a bunch of water in that location. And like any good Baptist, John knows that you need a lot of water in order to have a baptism. John wasn't sprinkling them. John wasn't pouring on them. You don't need a lot of water to do that. But John the Baptist, as a real Baptist, was baptizing people, dunking them in. There was much water there. And so there they are. John and his disciples are baptizing. Jesus' disciples are off baptizing. And what ends up happening is this discussion starts bubbling out of John's disciples, which again, you can parallel this kind of conversation coming out of John the Baptist's disciples with the kinds of conversations that come out of Jesus' disciples, can't you? The kind of like, what's going on with that? Who's going to be greater sort of discussions? And so here they are. This conversation begins bubbling out of their, uh, their time together. And a disgruntlement begins to emerge from the disciples of John. Look at verse 26. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. So I'm reading into this a little bit, but I hear his disciples thinking things like, John, John, your name is synonymous with baptism. Your name is John the Baptist. And somebody's beating you at your own game. Right? Like when you think of Maine, you think of lobster. When you think of boots, you think of L.O. Bean. You think of jeans, you think of Levi's. You think of motorcycles, you think of Harley. You think of John the Baptist, you think of baptism. It's in his name. And Jesus is, is taking all of the crowds. Everybody seems to like this Jesus guy. They're flocking to him, John, instead of flocking to you. And you can hear the kind of loyalty, right, in John's disciples. They're loyal to John the Baptist. They love John the Baptist, they want John to succeed. They want John the Baptist to have a great ministry. And also, by just way of quick observation, you notice that there has long been a conversation about the numbers of people that have been baptized and the kind of rivalries that come up between ministries in this situation and churches now and the baptism thing. But what you have developing here is a party spirit. This is tribalism. They didn't see John and Jesus as on the same team. They were on team John the Baptist. And the others were on team Jesus. And they're upset that everybody's flocking over to team Jesus. 
As Richard Phillips has said, here we see the tone of the chief threats to our usefulness to the Lord, a desire for personal prominence that results in envy and a party spirit. They were envious of all of the masses that were going over to Jesus and being baptized by Jesus' disciples and sitting there and listening to Jesus' sermons instead of listening to John the Baptist's sermons. And let me ask you, are we immune to this sort of party spirit in the kingdom of God? We're really not. John's disciples were in the middle of watching all of the people flock in droves over to Jesus, experiencing that envy and jealousy that comes along with that. And ultimately, what they don't realize or care to realize is that this rift among John the Baptist's disciples is coming at the expense of the name of Jesus. It is a complaint that Jesus is having the success. How easy it would be for us to kind of sit back and look at this conversation among the disciples of John and say, oh, that's so petty. That's something that's limited to them because of how silly and how petty they were being. But before we get too deep into this passage, we really need to check our own hearts to see if we don't also have some sort of party spirit that is evidenced here in John, the, the disciples of John's lives. How tempting would it be to look over to another church and to see baptisms and growth and all the kinds of things you would love to see in your own church and wonder, God, why are you not doing that in our church? Why aren't we seeing the level of baptisms that other churches are seeing? Why aren't we seeing the level of conversions that other churches are seeing? We pray that God would save people in central Maine. We pray that God would add them to our church family. But let me ask you, are we content and joyful when God answers your prayer of saving people and adding them to the church, but it's just not your own church? Are you content with that? We're so prone to thinking about our own little kingdoms, our own four walls in isolation. But friends, I want Jesus to expand his kingdom, not by just using our own church, but using all of the biblically based gospel preaching churches in our area. We cannot do this work all on our own. There's over 100,000 people in Kennebec County. We can't do it by ourselves. There's no way that one church can do all of the kingdom work in our county. We need other churches. We need relationships with other churches. We need to link arms with other churches and storm the gates of hell together. There's strength in numbers. We should desperately want and pray that other churches would have massive success and advancing the cause of Christ. You should pray for that. I want Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in Vassalboro to succeed. They are a Bible-based gospel preaching church. I want them to thrive. Now the Unitarian churches, I would like to see them all disappear. But the gospel preaching churches, I would love to see them succeed and flourish. I want to hear testimony of what God is doing in their church and the salvations that God is doing. I want to see Penny Memorial in Augusta under Justin Frank flourish. I want to see Grace Reformed Church in Brunswick under Pastor Mike Renahan flourish. I want to see Christ Reformed in Oakland under my father-in-law to flourish. Christ the King in Belfast under Garrett Susie to flourish. South Hope Community Church under Jamie Bickle. I want to see all of these churches Filled with people 
wanting to hear the word of the Lord, wanting to worship the King. And if other church, churches are experiencing growth because they are being faithful to God's word and they are being faithful in evangelism, then that is awesome. May God give us a thousand more churches like that. Can you imagine that? If we had a thousand churches in Kennebec County, like a, a lot of people each, a hundred people each, right? That'd be amazing. I hope you even noticed that that's our spirit when we pray for another local church every week. That we pray for, for instance, this morning, living waters in Oakland. And we do pray that God would use John Avery to preach the gospel in that place this morning. We want to see his church filled with people coming to know the Lord and worshiping him. But why do we pray for another church? In part, because we're trying to bake it into the pie of even our worship service that we're not just concerned with Windsor Christian Fellowship, but that we're concerned about other churches. And you know, other churches pray for us. I heard just a couple of weeks ago that uh, a pastor friend of Rhode Island, they prayed for our church and they were on a rotation and they pray for us all the way in Rhode Island. Specifically, I, I get emails all of the time from a church in Brunswick asking us if, if I have any requests that they can pray for in our church service, in their church service. It's wonderful. One person said that when you look at church like a business, you view other churches as competition. But Winter Christian Fellowship isn't in competition with any other church. Our goal is very simple. We seek to be faithful to Jesus and his word. And so our sincere longing must be what John says at the end of this passage, that Jesus must increase and we must decrease. It's not about our own pride. It's not about what we build. It's about what Jesus builds through us. And so we cannot tolerate a spirit of tribalism in our churches. We might do things differently than other churches. We might see things differently with other churches on some different matters and, and the kind of things that even put us in different church buildings. But I tell you what, I want nothing more than for those churches to succeed and to thrive for the sake of the king. And so this tribalism begins to bubble out of John's disciples. And you see John the Baptist begin to respond in verse 27. And it's this point, if we're really going to understand the infinite durability of Jesus and his ministry, if we're going to see Jesus increase, then we need to begin by having the right understanding, the right understanding of who he is and the right understanding of who we are. Look at verse 27. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. So I think it's displayed here that John has a clear understanding of these two things. He understands God's position and he understands his own position. He understands God rightly and he understands himself rightly in light of who God is. And so John the Baptist says, a person doesn't get anything unless God gives it to him. John knows where everything comes from. John knows where the trials in his life have come from. John knows where the blessings in his life have come from. He understands very clearly the sovereignty of God. 
When he says that nothing can come to you unless it comes from heaven, that's circumlocution. It's a roundabout way of saying that God is the one who dispenses everything. Everything that we have comes from God. You don't receive anything unless it's given to you directly by God. And this helps John immensely. And it frees him from the temptation to have any kind of envy of Jesus. And so when he hears what is bubbling out of his disciples, all he can do is respond and say, everything that we have comes from God. Everything that's going on in Jesus's ministry is of God. Everything that's happening in John the Baptist, his ministry is from God. John the Baptist is so settled into the sovereignty of God here that it just doesn't phase him that other people are going over to Jesus's ministry instead of his own. John knows that anything good that is happening in Christ's ministry is good because God is giving it. John knows that if God is blessing the ministry of the Messiah, then John has something to be thankful for. And so with this in mind, understanding the sovereignty of God, it helps him to rightly understand himself. So he understands God as sovereign, and then he understands himself in verse 28 when he says, I'm not the Messiah. Isn't that what he says in verse 28? I am not the Christ. John knows where he stands in light of Jesus. He knows that Jesus is far and away his greater. John knows his place. He's not seeking to outdo the Messiah because he knows that that would be a worthless endeavor. He knows that he was meant to be the forerunner of Jesus. And there is no doubt that John's mother, Elizabeth, told him about the time that her relative Mary came to visit. And all the way beginning back when John the Baptist was in the womb of his mother. Do you remember that whole scenario? And Mary comes and she's pregnant with Jesus. And Elizabeth is there and she's pregnant with John. And what does John do? He leaps, right? He leaps in his mother's womb. He's doing somersaults and jumping and kicking and rejoicing to be in the presence of Jesus. John understood from being in the preborn position. He knew his position in light of Jesus. He knew that Jesus is the one who needed to increase. He knew that it was the durability of Jesus's ministry that needed to be the case, not the durability of his own ministry. In fact, he understood his own ministry as being a passing thing. Think about this. The whole reason, the sole reason that God created John the Baptist was to live his life pointing to somebody better than himself. So his whole point is prophesied in the Old Testament. And he comes and he's like a new Elijah preparing the way for the Lord Jesus. He's to live his life making way for the king. Prepare ye the way for the Lord. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And there is no other reason for our existence, friends. The the reason for your existence is not to point to yourself. It's not to live for yourself and your own satisfaction. Because like they sang, you can't get no satisfaction. It's not about living for yourself. It's about pointing to Christ. It's about declaring him to the nations. 
It is not to build your own kingdom and to point to yourself. It's to point to and to glorify Jesus. As one author said in regard to John the Baptist, it did not bother John the Baptist in the least that his star was declining with the rising light of Christ. It just didn't bother him. And that's part of how you can tell a true Christian. When they can play the background and Jesus just takes the stage. Jesus takes the forefront in their life, in their life in the church, in their family, that Jesus is preeminent. It should not bother you in the least that Jesus receives all of the praise and the glory for what is done by your hand. And if we're going to straighten on this, it is going to require a sincere humility and repentance from pastors and from church members alike. Repenting over the fact that we have treated ourselves and our church like it is our kingdom and a reflection of us. Windsor Christian Fellowship is not about Brandon Dyer. And Windsor Christian Fellowship is not about you. Windsor Christian Fellowship is about Jesus. We must have the right understanding of God and ourselves in light of him. But second, we need to have the right attitude. When you have the right understanding, then you can have the right attitude. You see that beginning of verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. And so when you rightly understand yourself in light of God, you are free to have the right attitude. I love the illustration that John the Baptist uses to show us what his attitude is concerning Christ. He has zero issue with Jesus. He has zero envy or jealousy problems. There is nothing in his soul that covets what Jesus has because he knows his role. And he says it's like the role of a best man at a wedding. In John's day, the role of the best man was actually much more uh, consuming in terms of time and it was weighty. Listen to how one person described being the best man at the wedding was a couple thousand years ago. The friend of the bridegroom had a unique place at a Jewish wedding. He acted as the liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. He arranged the wedding. He took out the invitations. He presided at the wedding feast. He brought the bride and the bridegroom together. He had one special duty. It was his duty to guide the bridal chamber and let no false lover in. He would only open the door when, in the dark, he heard the bridegroom's voice and recognized it. When he heard the bridegroom's voice, he was glad and let him in. And he went away rejoicing because his task was complete. The job of this guy to stand at the bridal chamber and to not let anybody in but the guy he was the best man for. Because in the darkness of the night, when the bridegroom comes from the party to the bridal chamber, the, the, the best man knows that it's the, the, real, the real person. Knows that it's the genuine article. And so the friend of the bridegroom, this best man of sorts, plays a vital role. He's the wedding planner. He gives out the invitations. He oversees the entire event. The friend of the groom is really this wedding planner concept, which I'm so happy it's not that way anymore. He does a million things for an event that has ultimately nothing to do with him. 
He does everything so that the bride and the groom can stand at the center and to enjoy the spotlight. How odd would it be for the best man to stand in the middle of the room and to pat himself on the back and to glorify himself and to ask for kudos from everybody? Or think of how odd it would be for the best man to stand and to covet the woman that his friend is about to marry. That's ludicrous. I've had the opportunity as a groomsman or a best man at six of my friends' weddings, and none of those times did I stand there wishing I could be marrying the woman that they were marrying. And it wasn't because she wasn't a good and godly woman. Just because I had my own. (laughs) But I wasn't envious of them. I was happy for them. I was overjoyed for them. And so it was with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is seeing the bridegroom and he's seeing the bride go out to Jesus and he's saying, my job here is done. The joy that I have is that it's full. My job is complete. My whole ministry has been about taking the baton and handing it to Jesus. It's for him. His is the durable ministry. John's joy was seeing Jesus as the groom. And when you think of it, how wonderful to be even considered the friend of the bridegroom as John was. And now his role was coming to an end and he could rejoice. Why? Because his job was done. He understood rightly, which caused him to have the right joyful attitude. And is this the kind of attitude that you have as you live your life pointing to Jesus? Are you satisfied not getting the credit and for God alone receiving the glory for what he does through your hands? Is that the attitude that we have as a church as we try to seek to point people to Jesus? Why is it that people outside of the church have such a negative perspective on those people who are inside of the church? Oftentimes they have good reason to. So many Christians don't live their life in the purpose of their life, the way that John the Baptist lived his, with joy in the durability and the expansion of Jesus's kingdom. John the Baptist lived in the wilderness. He wore camel hide for clothes. He ate honey and grasshoppers. John's life had one singular purpose, and it had nothing to do with self-promotion. It had nothing to do with garnering money and fame. John's joy was full Because he had done exactly what he had been commissioned by God to do. And friend, do you have that same attitude? Are you joyful in the tasks that God has given you? Are you joyful in the service of Christ? The right understanding leads to the right attitude. And having the right attitude flows into the right response that you see in verse 30. He must increase. But I must decrease. Over in the book of Luke, John the Baptist says something that displays the same concept. And he says, he who is mightier than I is coming. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. You think of these cultures and the foot washing that would go on as they come in from these dusty areas. And you can imagine all of the animal feces all over the road, drying and powderizing and jumping up into the air, getting all over everybody's feet. That feet were quite gross. And John says, I can't even touch Jesus's sandals. 
I can't even untie his sandals. That's how unworthy I am before him. And Jesus is mightier than me. Don't look to my strength. Look to Jesus' strength. I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of his feet. I'm not even fit to play the role of a slave in Jesus' life and take off his sandals. Do you hear the humility and the meekness of John the Baptist? I'm unworthy. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. One author said, the last words of John the Baptist to be recorded in this gospel form surely one of the greatest utterances that ever fell from human lips. I agree with that. These are incredible words. But the reality of John the Baptist is that he lived those words. Jesus increased and John decreased. They weren't just words for him. He lived them. He doesn't say Jesus really should increase and I should really decrease. Or maybe if I make the time, I can I can make it happen. Or it's strongly recommended that Jesus increase in the night. Decrease. He says, I must Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And so I would ask you to look over your own life. Honestly, is Jesus increasing in your life? Is Jesus filling out more and more of your heart and mind? Is Jesus the motivation for all that you do and for all that you say? When you spend your time with your family, is Jesus filling that out? Is he on your heart and mind? When you spend it with your church, is Christ fueling your hands? When you go to work, is Christ motivating your work ethic? Is he truly increasing and taking more and more dominion over your life? Is Jesus increasing and are you decreasing? Do you speak less of your own triumphs? Your own wins? Do you recognize yourself as the chief of sinners? Do you understand that you, like Jonathan Edwards says, must lie infinitely low before God? When we consider the increasing of Christ and the decreasing of us, are we recognizing that all that he builds in our lives is what is lasting? That's what's durable. And it's eternally durable. If you're going to think about the infinite durability of Jesus... You need to recognize that it's only what he builds in your life that's going to be eternally durable. What you build is wood, hay, stubble. What he builds is lasting. Our hope must be less of us and more of Jesus. And friend, whatever Christ needs to do in order to increase through your life is what needs to happen. There is nothing too extreme for Jesus. He has told you to pick up your cross and to follow after him, which tells you that the final moment of your life could be potentially hanging on the cross that he told you to pick up in the first place. If it would magnify the name of Jesus to wipe Brandon Dyer off the face of the earth, then so be it. If it would increase the name of Christ For the church to experience intense persecution as you're beginning to see some of that ramp up in places like Canada, then it must be so. When your life is all about Jesus being increased and all about you being decreased, you will know a little bit of the joy of John the Baptist. And friend, this sort of perspective is so freeing. 
Because it allows you, allows you, like we looked at the last time, it allows you to live freely in the light, growing toward Christ, coming toward Christ, being exposed by the light of Christ. And so that as he is increasing in your life, you can say, this is all Jesus. This is not me. God truly and miraculously takes people, raises them from the dead, and then makes them more and more like himself. This is the glory of sanctification. And we can look back and we can say like the Apostle Paul, not, like, not, not because of me, but the grace of God that was at work in me. Remember when Paul says that? He says, I worked, I worked harder than all the other apostles. Yet not I, but the grace. Like, it's almost like he catches himself. Yet not I, but the grace of God that's actually at work in me. And so if you see my hand or if I see your hand at, God, at the plow of gospel ministry doing a good work, I can say, praise God for that brother or sister and the Holy Spirit, the grace of God that is at work at, in them and through them right now. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. Our lives must be about becoming smaller, not greater. More of Jesus, less of you. How I desire that over the years of knowing each other that you would say, I see less and less of Brandon and I see more and more of Jesus. I want to look at you and as the years continue to go, I want to say there's less and less in you and there's more and more of Jesus. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 that he is in anguish until Christ is formed in the Galatians. And that's a goal of my ministry in your life as well. That I would be in anguish. I would be in that struggle and that fight with you until Christ is formed in you. Until we see this fully mature version of Christ within you. That you have grown so near him and so like him that we could say that he's actually formed in us. Less of us and more of him. This is all antithetical to making much of yourself. It's antithetical to self-promotion. It's antithetical to building a platform. It's antithetical to the whole concept of fame, to building an audience, having a million follows online or likes on social media. And although that's true, there is something incredible about the kingdom of God. It just turns everything upside on its head. That it's the small things that become great. It's the slaves who become great. It's John the Baptist who lives his life decreasing, who is great. Do you remember what Jesus says about John in Matthew chapter 11? He says, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. You think of this man who spent his life and teaching his disciples in this moment. It's about decreasing, guys. And it's about Jesus increasing. And, John, and Jesus says about John, there's no one greater born among women than that man. Why? Because he lived his life decreasing. And that's what I want the testimony to be about me. And that's what I want the testimony to be about you that we would decrease and that Jesus would increase. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word and this special passage to think about you increasing.